Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. As we live in this world, one of the terrible conditions of the fall into sin is that tragedy fills the creation. And a tragedy is when something unexpected happens that involves suffering or destruction, and especially the loss of life. This is like a car accident or a shooting or a sudden illness or a plague or a war or a pestilence. Certain tragedies can be seen from a long way off as we think that there's things that a person does, like succumbing to a long-held addiction or a reckless driver having an accident, you can see that tragedy. But there are also the ones we can't see coming, and they sting anyway. As we live in this world that surprises us often with pain, they come out of nowhere. As they shock you with how they suddenly spring into your life like an accident or a fire or a sudden storm or a murder or an illness that comes out of nowhere unexpectedly robbing a person of life or a family member or a person they love. The most painful and shocking part of a tragedy is how fruitless and painful it is. There's often never any good, at least that we can see, coming out of a tragic death or a tragic loss. There are just death and pain, and there is not an apparent or obvious purpose. The most terrible example of this sort of tragedy comes with the loss of a child. And that is what we see today in two of our readings. We see mothers who have lost their children they're not just ordinary mothers who maybe have a husband that they can fall back onto or family members who live with them that can take care of them. These women are widows. We have the widow of Zarephath with Elijah, and we have the widow of Nain with Jesus. And these women lost their only sons. They succumb to illness and starvation, and they ultimately die. And this is where we encounter these women today. It is in the sudden shock and pain of the loss of their only sons, their only child. We see these women cast into their sudden grief and their mourning, and certainly no one can blame them for their tears. Their sadness is completely justifiable as they lose the only remaining family and support that they had. They're left with only themselves and their sorrow. As the scriptures, they will say, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's left alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. These women are left with no one. No husband, no family, no other children. Just their only sons stripped away from them and their youth. And when such tragedies strike our lives, it's easy to ask the question, where is God? Where is God in every bit of this? If God is loving and good, why is he giving me nothing but grief and sorrow? Why does he seem to be picking on me? Why do others seem to be having nothing but good fortune, blessings, and comfort in this life when I have nothing but pain and loss and sorrow? 
Why is it that God is dealing with me with such severity while others are given such kindness? Why do I have such terrible problems and sorrows in this life while others seem to have such pleasant and comfortable wives? Why me? Why? Why is one of the biggest and greatest questions that comes to the mind when we suffer the sorrow of tragic and painful events? Why is there death and sorrow? Why has that death and sorrow come to me? And there's always the obvious answer that we arrive at. It's the answer that the widow of Zarephath came to as she confronted Elijah over the death of her son. She looks at Elijah, who's been staying with her, eating her bread, living in her home. He says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. She's not entirely wrong here. And she complains to Elijah, saying her son's death brings her sins to remembrance. Perhaps the most painful part of tragedy is that it sheds light on the reality of sin. Death exists in this world for a reason. Adam was told in the Garden of Eden, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And certainly death has come into this world because of the sin that infects every aspect now of this fallen creation. As Adam ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, the entire created world fell into disarray and began to crumble and suffer from that moment on. And now the once perfect, immutable, and undying creation that God had made was subjected to death, decay, and debasement. Everything seems to run on death. It was not so at the beginning. Everything was perfectly united with the source of life. God sustained the creation from his goodness and his holiness. Creatures did not have to die to feed other creatures. The earth did not have to receive its fertility from the decomposition and death of another. Everything simply flourished because that is how God created it to exist. But when sin comes into the world, death becomes the reality. For the wages of sin is death. And now creation groans under the subjugation of sin and its terrible consequences. And sin brings more than mere death of our bodies. It brings the spiritual death that we have in being severed from the soul-sustaining goodness and perfection of the Holy One. St. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This death is so much more terrible and severe than the death of the body. The death of the body is not something that we should fear nearly as much as the destruction of both body and soul in hell. As Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that not will be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. 
What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered now, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's what makes death such a fearful event. It's not just that we die, but it's that we die and stand in the judgment of the Holy One. We must stand before God. And he has the power, rightly so, to cast the wicked into hell. Perhaps this is what makes death of our bodies the most terrifying and causes tragedy to be so bleak. It's not that the tragedy is some injustice on God's part, but that it's what our sinful nature merits us. What should really be surprising about tragedy is that it doesn't happen more often. That the grace of God does not permit it to happen as often as we deserve. He guards us against real tragedies for no other reason that he is gracious and he is loving. The Lord says through his prophet Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. See, God is the giver of life. His desire for us, even as sinners, is life. And this is what he calls us to believe about him. And we certainly are to fear his wrath over and against sin so that we live maybe a pious, repentant, holy life. Luther's close of the Ten Commandments teaches us, it says, what does God say about these commandments? It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does that mean? But that God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against him. But he promises grace and every blessing to all those who keep his commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. And so then we should fear trespassing against God. We should rightfully hate sin and strive to live lives that are faithful to God and his holy will. Yet we are also to acknowledge our own weakness to sin. We are to look at ourselves and see what we truly are. As we are sinners standing before a righteous God, and God is not wrong in judging sinners. And yet we see God say again and again, he does not desire to be known solely as the God of judgment, but the God who is merciful. He's the one who puts away our sins and brings life to the dead. And that is what we see in Jesus as he approaches the funeral procession in the city of Nain. As the widow is struck with sorrow and sadness at the tragic loss of her only son, we see her encounter with the only begotten Son of God. And he is not unmoved by her loss. On the contrary, he sees her loss and he has compassion for her. There's no compassion greater than that of our Lord Jesus. And though we deserve worse than we get in this life, Jesus does not desire for us to suffer. He sees this woman's tears. He sees her loss and her pain. And so it is with all of us who are loved by God. As King David writes in Psalm 56, he says, You number my wanderings, you put my tears into your bottle. Are they not all in your book? We have a God who sees our tears. 
We have a God who cares for us in our sorrow, and he is not a distant and uncaring God when we have sadness and loss in this life. Our tears, our sorrow, our weeping, it is precious in his sight. Later in the Gospels, Jesus himself was moved to tears as he encountered the funeral party of his dear friend Lazarus. As we read, Jesus wept. And this is how the Lord is. He's not unmoved by our sorrow. He cares. As Hebrews 4 teaches us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So upon seeing this poor widow, Jesus comforts her. He sees her sadness at the loss of her son and he says, Do not weep. This is not some blind consolation. So often we see someone crying, and that crying makes, especially if you're a guy, that crying makes us all uncomfortable. And we try to comfort the person who's sad. We try to comfort him saying, okay, now they're there. It'll be okay. How often our words of consolation are empty, but not with Jesus. The wonder of this event is that Jesus walks up to an inconsolable woman and says, do not weep. And his words actually mean something. He's not giving an empty consolation to this woman to make her feel better. He's taking away her reason for sorrow. When Jesus says, do not weep, he's telling this woman that he came into this world to take away the cause of her tears and her sorrow. That's something we need to hear from Jesus. How often in our lives do we simply need to hear Jesus walk up to us and tell us, weep no longer. I am here. I am with you. I've come to bear your sorrows. I've come to end your tragedy. I will wipe the tears from your eyes. He alone can carry out that promise. As he says to Martha after her brother Lazarus dies, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And this is the truth. Jesus says that he has come to bring life to the world, and he does so by bearing the sins of the world. Jesus tells Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the one who turns weeping into laughing. He's the one who reverses death and sorrow in this world. He is the one who undoes the power of Satan and the curse of sin. And he relieves us from the burden of divine judgment and gives us his peace. And he does this by being our sin bearer. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sins of the world by being the sin bearer. He suffers for our sins. He dies as a sinless offering to God. As St. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so, when we look to Jesus, we look to the one who has overcome sin and death on our behalf. We see the one who has taken away the cause of our suffering and sorrow. The sin that stands at the root of every tragedy 
has been taken away by Jesus. And we are forgiven and stand as the holy children of God. So what St. Paul preaches in Romans 8 proves true as he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned by your sins. Rather, you are freed from them. And though we groan under the decay and the sadness of this broken and fallen world, we have been promised glory in the resurrection of Jesus. And we see this play out perfectly in how things shape up in name. Jesus confronts the tragic death in name, and as he tells the widow, do not weep, he does two things that might seem odd. First, he immediately reaches out and touches the funeral bier that her dead son has been laid upon. This would have been a strange thing for him to do. To touch the dead would make him unclean. Only those who were close family and friends would touch a dead body. They would have to go through a series of washings to be returned to purity so that they could re-enter all the civilized world. Yet Jesus did not hesitate to reach out and touch the funeral bier. And why? Well, he comes to bear our death. He comes to bear the impurity that our death brings. It is only appropriate that Jesus touches this dead man. He has come into this world to bear his sin and to die his death. He takes his impurity and assumes his mortality. And this is who Jesus is. He's the sin bearer. He is the death bearer. And as he does this, he brings death to life. An old Bible commentator once said, He touched the coffin and the hand of life wrapped on the chamber of death. And then Jesus speaks. Many people will say things to the deceased as they stand at the graveside or, or at the funeral, and it's usually a token or to comfort themselves, knowing that deep down, the dead person cannot hear you. They are dead. Yet, when Jesus speaks to the dead man, the dead man hears. He listens. He's compelled to listen to the voice of his almighty God. And when God speaks, even the dead must obey his commands. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the man hears. He listens. And he obeys. The dead son of a widow gets up and starts speaking. And the dead man is raised. And this only stands as a foreshadowing of the greater resurrection that will take place. The true and eternal resurrection that begins in Christ's resurrection. As he rises from the dead, so that dead and at the death that we might experience stands as a conquered foe. St. Paul preaches this with confidence. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, that implies a greater harvest to follow. We are living in the time of the harvest. We are living in the midst of the resurrection even now. We live in the time of the assurance that God has conquered our final foe. And as we celebrate the truth that Jesus lives, he does not remain in the tomb. That means we will not remain in our tombs either. The final foe is defeated and the church sings, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory, O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin. Those are forgiven. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So even as we live in the days of the resurrection, we do live in a time where there is weeping. We do not live, though, as those who are condemned by God in our tears. Rather, our weeping is promised to be brought to an end as we live in this time of resurrection. Even as we face the most horrific and heartbreaking tragedies in this world, Jesus consoles us with the same words that he shares with the widow. Do not weep. And that word of consolation is never empty. As he promises to take away our tears and our sorrows, as we often sing in the fifth stanza of, I know that my Redeemer lives, he lives to wipe away my tears, he lives to calm my troubled heart, he gives the promise to his church, as he promises to be our shepherd in the valley of sorrows. And as he tells us in the book of Revelation, It says, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ shepherds us through this valley of sorrow, the valley of the shadow of death, so that we do not need to fear death. We do not need to fear tragedy. It is a foe that stands conquered. Everything that would give the Christian sorrow in this world is something that has already been overcome by Christ. And as we endure those sorrows, though they smart, they hurt, they break our hearts, they cause tears, we stand as those who have been given victory in Christ Jesus. That victory is shared with his church. Jesus is never absent from your life as you live in the body of believers who dwell in this world. Jesus cannot deny his own. He will not deny his own. He promises his presence for us in our time of need and sorrow. He consoles sinners with his absolution. He comforts those who grieve with the bread of life, and he gives assurance to us in the waters of baptism. He is present for us just as he was present for the grieving widows in our lessons today. He is present in the preaching of his word and the forgiveness of sins and the promise of his presence in his sacraments. Our Lord Jesus Christ takes away our weeping and our sorrow. He comforts us as he says, I forgive you. You are mine. I love you. And as he takes away that weeping and sorrow, he brings us ultimately to be at home with him in heaven. And so cling to Jesus. Trust in his word. Know how he cares for you. Know that he is never distant in your tragedy. He is never far from your sorrow. And he cares for you in the midst of your tears. And above all, he is the giver of life. As we live in the resurrection of the dead, the dead are raised every time their sins are forgiven by Jesus. We raise the dead as the people of God as we live in the forgiveness of sins. We live in the assurance that Christ has risen for us every time we hear the words, I forgive you, spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have life in the face of death every day until the last day when the Lord will open up every tomb and every grave and say, Arise. Let us pray.
Almighty God, comfort our sorrows, relieve our pains in the knowledge of the resurrection of your Son, console us by the work of your Holy Spirit as he shows us Jesus, who is risen from the dead. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, even unto life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.